Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. On today's episode of our Daily NYFF 60 edition, director Laura Poitras, artist Nan Golden, and subjects Megan Kapler, Harry Cullen, and Mike Quinn discuss All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, the centerpiece selection of this year's festival with Dennis Lim. In her essential, urgent, and arrestingly structured new documentary from Participant, Academy Award-winning filmmaker Laura Poitras weaves two narratives— the fabled life and career of era-defining artist Nan Golden, and the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty Golden personally took on in her fight to hold accountable those responsible for the deadly opioid epidemic. Following her own personal struggle with opioid addiction, Golden, who rose from the New York no-wave underground to become one of the great photographers of the late 20th century, put herself at the forefront of the battle against the Sacklers, both as an activist at art institutions around the world that had accepted millions from the family, and as an advocate for the destigmatization of drug addiction. Illustrated with a rich trove of photographs by Golden, who mesmerizingly narrates her own story, including her dysfunctional suburban upbringing, the loss of her teenage sister, and her community's fight against AIDS in the 1980s, Portress's film is an enthralling, empowering work that stirringly connects personal tragedy, political awareness, and artistic expression. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed will open in our theaters at Film at Lincoln Center on November 23rd. To learn more and get tickets for this year's NYFF, taking place through October 16th in all five boroughs of NYC, visit filmlink.org. Enjoy this conversation with Laura Poitras and Nan Golden. Thank you all. Uh, thank you all for joining us for the press conference of our centerpiece film, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Uh, I'm going to introduce our participants uh, furthest from me. Um, you've seen him in the film, Mike Quinn. Also in the film, Megan Kapler, Harry Cullen, of course, Nan Golden, and the film's director, Laura Poitras. Um, I think I'm going to start with... Uh, a question for both Laura and Nan. Um, I was gonna ask how this film came about, but actually maybe pulling even further back, I was curious about, you obviously had an awareness of each other's work that predates this collaboration, so I was wondering if you could both maybe start by speaking about that. Yeah, of course. Um, I studied um, filmmaking in San Francisco, the San Francisco Art Institute, when Nan was um, showing her work, the, the ballad. Um, and a good friend of mine who was studying photography had an early copy of the, the print book. And so I've known it for so long. And, you know, I mean, Nan has, you know, influenced generation of filmmakers, generations, multiple generations of filmmakers through her storytelling and the sort of emotional depths of her work. So I've known about her work and the courage that she brings to it throughout my filmmaking um, career. Um, and, and then when she started doing these protests, <laughs> um, I was just like, I was just so moved that and inspired that Nan was using her position in the art world to call him to, you know, to, to, to hold the Sackler family accountable. And, uh, yeah. I had always known Laura's work and been a huge admirer enormously. And uh, actually, you know, when Snowden came out, I met her in the Portuguese, in uh, Lisbon Film Festival. I was on the jury. And... I asked some really stupid questions. Like, what do you do if you don't know how to use a computer? 
<laughs> literally. She was talking about security, and I was thinking about how to, you know, Google. So, yeah, not using a computer is the best security that there is. <laughs> and then I I followed all her all her work, and then it came that it was an option that she take over the film. We had already started it for a year and a half with a, two of the people from Pain, and Howard and John, John Lyons and Howard Gertler introduced Laura to the project. And I really thought that I wasn't important enough, that I didn't have any documents worth releasing. So I was very scared at the beginning that I wasn't up to what Laura was doing. So maybe you can tell us what you know this project was initially before Laura came on board. So what 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 you maybe the other the other members of Pain want to if you, if, if uh, Megan and Harry you were also involved. Um, the idea was to document the activism. Um, it started right after I got out of a clinic uh, for my addiction, and two of my assistants that I'd worked with for eight or ten years wanted to make sure that I started doing work again as well as pain. So that's how the idea came up of making a film together. And we went different places. We went to LA, to a sober community there. So it was going to be both about recovery and pain. And we didn't have any money. So the shooting was limited. And then the director got pregnant. And then Laura. Laura, do you want to pick it up from there? Yeah, I mean, Nan says it's like so matter of fact. I mean, it's incredible what this, what Payne did so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, Nan, when she came out of recovery, she read this uh, essay um, by Patrick Radden Keefe, who you see in the film. This was 2017? 2017, yeah. late 20, fall 2017, where he sort of, I mean, the, you know, the, the scandal around the overdose crisis and the link to Purdue was very well known, but the Sacklers had been very successful to sort of keep their name out of the press. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this scathing um, expose that, that sort of made this link. And Nan read it and she's, you know, as, as he says in the film, says, we, you know, called him up immediately and she and says, we need to do something we need to organize. And then she did this, you know, the, the, this art forum um, sort of declaration of like, here's, you know, I'm, I'm creating an organization. We're going to hold these people accountable. And it's, you know, it was incredible. And then the Met was in March. So this all happened such a uh, quick succession. Um, as for, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's for me, this it's it's so inspiring to, you know, work with a group of people to be trusted, to tell the story with people who are taking the kind of risks. I mean, the, the risks were real. The Sacklers have vast resources. Um, they can use their lawyers, their private investigators and other dirty tricks to come after people, which is what they do. And so there was there was a lot at stake and they took enormous risk to. to you know, also reputational risk for Nan to 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 stick her neck out. And, and bring this concept to the various cultural institutions that collect her work um, to go against our patrons was extremely risky and extremely vulnerable. And at the time, we remember people calling and saying, what are you doing? And it, it, one, one, of the, one of the successes in this is that the, um, the dialogue changed within you know, a year to 18 months where suddenly people were saying, no, this is wrong with it, it take their names down from the institutions. So it, it was an incredible risk for a practitioner to, to put herself out there and then to change the social dialogue completely. I don't really think about the risks. Like when I want to do something, 
when I get obsessed, there's no stopping me. And I hope more people get obsessed from reading your articles. Like, I hope I read something soon that tells me the new path to go on and who to go after next. Exactly. I mean, it's in museums and in the rest of the world, it's not just the Sacklers. Um, we were happy that the conversation that Payne helped to start rippled out into other institutions and other big money donors like Warren Kanders at the Whitney was was brought down by decolonize this place and other activist groups who who organized for weeks on end to make this known and i think that the work that nan's done and putting her stature in the art world at risk and taking that stand to amplify the work of journalists like patrick redden keefe was our ability as a group and and in our campaign to to amplify those messages and hold it up to the institutions that benefited from it yeah, and in terms of like documenting um, our group, we we knew that um, part of our protests were to be visually striking and really work within each space and on days that the museums might be free and have an increased, you know, uh, amount of people in the room with us. And that was like, that was really important because we didn't, you know, want to be doing these smaller actions and we knew that we wanted them to, to be visually striking and it was great to document that and um, even in the beginning when museums were silent in their response to our protests we knew we were doing the right thing and we stuck together and um, and worked it out until you know the names started coming down but first the refusing of the funding that was the first step from the museums. Um, Laura, to come back to you, um, can you talk then about you know coming onto the project? And it sounds like you like, really expanded the scope of the project in the sense of it being a film not just about Nan and Payne and Nan's activism, but about her life and work, um, which seems like a very signature Laura Laura Poitras move. <laughs> I think this uh, the way of the, I think all your films are about like finding the political through the personal. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel uh, my films are portraits. I, I, I don't use the word biography. This is not a biography. This is a portrait um, and it's a portrait of an artist um, who, you know, is engaged in a political struggle. And the, I, in our first meeting, um, I, 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 Nan told me about Witnesses Against Our Vanishing, which I didn't know the history of. I, of course, know David Wanarovich's work, and, uh, but I didn't know that she had done this extraordinary exhibition at the, at the height of the tragic AIDS crisis and that it had created this national outcry of sort of culture wars, part of this whole culture wars conversation. And I just, when Nan told me that she had curated this show, like she had sort of like um, made, made that choice. I knew that that was gonna be an anchor. I knew that this film had to go into the past and that there had to be a convergence between that historical moment and, and what we're dealing with today. Because I think this country has a tendency for amnesia. Um, I mean, you know, we went through the AIDS crisis. Why, why isn't there universal health care in this country? Like how much more suffering and death does this country need to go through before like basic human rights um, are met? And, and so there was, there was something about that. And then just also something about Nan, like, you know, being on the right side of history over and over again. Um, can you talk about, I guess, really editing and finding the form because it's yeah. quite um yeah. it's quite complex you know yeah. you have the chapters but then you has also had this constant movement yeah. um between the past and the present. i mean the once we started working on it i mean this is you know cinema's collaborative and i had we had an amazing um group of collaborators including nan and her studio um in terms of 
um, structuring the film, but we it was we we wanted her her slideshows to be part of the film to be uh, an essential part of the story um and uh the collaborators uh, joe beanie who's extraordinary editor who's worked with Werner herzog and lynn ramsey he sort of kind of did did like an outline of um of a structure sort of moving between past and present and and then amy foot is really an extraordinary editor with verte material so those are the sort of key editors and then working closely with nan to uh, you know every step of the way like once we we shared a cup with her that we were being truthful to her experience as best we could um i wanted to actually talk about just the use of nan's work in in the film um and the, some of the photographs and the slideshows and it's so interesting i mean you've you know the context in which you see these images um whether they're you know photographs on a wall or in a book or actually here in the cinema i think there's like a real power to, see, to seeing them within the context of a film in as a communal experience in a big room, big dark room like this. Um, I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, how you thought about using these slideshows within a movie. I mean, in a way, they were pillars, they were anchors that we were trying to that, you know, Nan has done such extraordinary work um, about her life and that we were that the that throughout the film that we were sort of building towards that they were um, the sort of pillars that hold the film up is is how um, I think about them, and and then I, yeah, I mean, hopefully the audience who sees the film will also um, encounter her, the, the slideshows because they're just so incredible, and you know that's the ideal the ideal situation is that the work they can sit alongside each other. You know, my practice is slideshows. And I, I show them, as you talked about, in a dark theater as a communal experience, very visceral and emotional. And that's my work. The other's kind of tangential. The, you know, prints and the books, I love the books, but they're tangential to the major work. I'm about to have a retrospective that's only slideshows. So for me, slideshows are the closest I can come to making movies. And the advantage is that you can constantly re-edit them and update them, which you can't with a movie. So I have that freedom. But in this exhibition coming up, I am going to be presented as a filmmaker, which is what I've wanted to be presented as since I was 15. So, <laughs> And I hope people get to see the slideshows because that's a real experience. She used small parts of them, but they run anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes. Uh, Nan, I wanted to maybe hear you talk about, you know, the collaboration with Laura from, from your side and, and just, I guess, the experience of being on the other side of the camera. Um, so initially it was about pain and I didn't know that we were going to go into that territory. Then it started to expand with the stuff from my work during the AIDS crisis. And then she became interested in the personal. I don't know how. <laughs> what provoked that? I'm curious. Do you remember a moment? Yeah, I do. The work. The work. I mean, uh, you know, when I saw Sisters, uh, Sister Saints and Sibyls, which is a, th uh, a three-channel installation piece. It's at the end of the film. It's about my sister. And, yeah, then I was making new edits of slideshows and actually made a new slideshow for a show 2019 at Marion Goodman in London. And Laura was 
around filming and she started to help me editing my work which as i always say like laura and i are both it would be impossible for us to watch an artist's work and not say what we think so laura had really good insight into it and then when COVID came she decided to stop filming and do these weekly interviews in my house on weekends and uh, i really looked forward to them they went really deep and they were always with this amazing understanding that i could take out anything i didn't want because the film is my voice with my pictures telling my story so it has to be my truth and that's a delicate thing when someone else is editing your words but i was allowed to protest against things I felt were said wrong or were going too far. Actually, I let everything go too far. I'm just going to ask uh, maybe one more question and then we'll, we'll open it up to you. Um, I'm curious about the, the footage of your parents Nan, that um, appears at the end of the film. I was wondering if you could give us a bit more context about what you had in mind with that. What, what, what was that material being you know, used for? In 2004, I did a piece um, at the Salpetriere in Paris for a theater festival that was a room, a building, I made a building within Salpetriere Chapel for people to ascend to watch this three-channel piece about my sister. And it was very, very intense about my sister and about my own self-harm. And after that, I decided to, we, we me and my collaborator in Paris, decided to make a film about my sister. And we started traveling around. That's where the mental hospital footage comes from. And that scene of my parents was for this 2004 film that never got made. The editor looked at the material and said it was too boring. <laughs> it's true. What was your um, reaction to seeing it, Laura? I I, I probably similar to your th thought. I mean, it's, you know, I, what I think is um, amazing about that footage is, I don't know, the, the you know, how the complexity and the love that's there, mm -hmm. even though the, the pain that's also there, you know, I, but I don't want to say, you know, yeah. I mean too much because I think it's so, um, but I, I, yeah, I think it's really just incredibly moving. All right, we're going to open it up for questions. Um, I think there are microphones, so if you have a hand up, I guess I'll start in the front, yeah. At one point you say that uh, you discovered photography as a way to walk through fear, which is a very striking sentence. And I thought, does the activism also connect in a way with walking through fear? Absolutely. That's a very good point. I've never heard that. Absolutely. Um, actually, coming out of the clinic after years of addiction, I didn't understand the world at all. But I could see that things were really dark and I had to do something to push back. So I found my fight and it kept me sober. They say, you know, in recovery movement, you need something bigger than yourself. And this fight became bigger than myself. So, yeah, it's a way to walk through fear. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that just makes me think also of, I mean, one of the major scenes for me in the film is when Nan speaks publicly at a hearing in front of New York State Assembly members about 
uh, needing and using medication-assisted treatment and being on buprenorphine, which is something that I know you weren't ready to be public with when we started doing this. And finding the strength and walking through that fear to say that publicly and provide inspiration and support for other people who are doing the same thing or need the same thing is something that I think this film will continue to to inspire people with that and to help people with that. And medication-assisted treatment is so fundamental to recovery for people, whatever part of recovery they might be in. And Linda B. Rosenthal in that scene is one of our state assembly women here in New York and is an incredible advocate for progressive drug policy that centers harm reduction and meeting people where they're at, which is what's successful. Yeah, right there. Thanks. Um, yeah, I want to ask Ms. Borchers about using songs from the movie rather than just getting a composer to do a score, very mir much mirrored Nan's slideshows, it seems. I was curious about picking the songs, how you did that, and whether Nan had some input on that. I think she has a credit as music consultant. I was the music consultant. <laughs> Most of that music I brought on. And the composers were friends of mine for the score parts. I brought them on too. Yeah, I worked very closely on the music. For me, film music can break or make a film. Like, basically, I'll watch anything that Johnny Greenwood does, even if I don't like the film. <laughs> yeah, right here. Firstly, thank you for the film. Um, given that so much of the film is about the process of raising awareness, making institutions become aware of what Sackler money means, changing their opinions on that and achieving amazing results. Do you think there's any potential that maybe some actual Sacklers will come around on this and realize what they've done? I mean, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's possible maybe. And then also it was amazing to see Cookie alive again. That was really beautiful. And, um, but so, so thank you for the film, but is there hope for the Sacklers? Um, I mean, my answer is no. Uh, you know, there is a filmmaker in, in the Sackler family, Madeline Sackler, who does work on documentaries. And, you know, when she was asked about the family, um, in early on in, in our campaign, she said, you know, I have another grandfather who was a mathematician and no one asks about him. So basically like, you know, I don't think that there's going to be a turnaround for the, for the family. I think they're, they're very loyal to their, their cause. And, um, and they're, they're ultimately, they protect themselves and their lawyers protect them. You know, I don't know. What do you yeah, think, Dan? I, th Mike? I thought the question you were going to ask is, is the federal government going to come around and, <laughs> and indict some of the Sacklers, you know? And, and so that's what we're looking at. And the issue is the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma and the other um, manufacturers, distributors and pharmaceutical companies involved in the opioid crisis, uh, in a sense, funded the federal government and their activities for so long. You know, the Sacklers gave tens of millions of dollars to the National Academy of uh, Health and Science, uh, who would then uh, pay experts to consult with the FDA and to consult with Congress. So we're really looking at a system in which this is built for people like the Sacklers, you know, and we've called for federal indictments to some of the more, you know, ind Sackler individuals who were participating in day-to-day -day at Purdue Pharma. But to this point, uh, there has been no news on that. It wasn't even just built for people like the Sacklers. It was built by people like the Sacklers. I mean, Arthur Sackler himself was the inaugural member of the Pharmaceutical Advertising Hall of Fame, if you can believe that there's one of those. But, um, I mean, he, he made the integrated um, revolving door system that 
continues to this day. So as many museums and donor donees will try and say that Arthur Sackler and his side of the family is not implicated in the OxyContin fortune, um, he very much is. The whole schematic, the whole blueprint that they continue to use was him. One more thing to answer your question. Um, Kathy Sackler was asked in a congressional hearing if, if she would ever do anything differently. She was asked by a member of Congress and she said something like, no, I can't think of anything I would do differently. So, I mean, there, there's the opportunity there in front of Congress and they're, you know, in the public sphere so widely now. So, yeah. I, and I don't know that the question really is, will they come around? I think the real question is, will they be held accountable? And the answer to that is apparently no. I mean, this family didn't, nobody in the family had to declare bankruptcy in this bankruptcy deal. It was only Purdue. They siphoned the money out and then the, the company declared bankruptcy. I mean, they should be stripped of their money and they should be indicted. I mean, that's what should happen. I, I don't think it really matters if they come around at this point because they knowingly sold this drug after, after mountains of evidence and decades of people dying. And, and did nothing, continued to profit off it, to continue to think of how they could make more money. I mean, there's one of the most notorious um, programs they had is something called, what is the, the funnel? Project Tango. Project Tango, where they, you know, they had a funnel where they talked end about how could treatment. they get people addicted and then how could they make money off of the sort of treatment phase. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's um, the level of criminality is just really hard to, um, yeah, overstate. And included how much money would they make if people relapsed? This is incredible. Yeah, and I will just say that I think what I'm more interested in seeing than the Sacklers coming around or even the federal government coming around, although that's important too, is the rest of the country coming around. I think showing what the Sacklers have done is important because they relied so heavily on stoking the flames of a racist war on drugs. And Richard Sackler said, we have to hammer on the abusers. They're reckless criminals and they're the culprits of the problem. And the only criminal here is Richard Sackler and his ilk. It's not the people who are suffering, who are either suffer from chronic pain and now need OxyContin and other opioids, but can't get them because one family saw fit to make as much money as possible. Um, or people using drugs in the street who now have a poison drug supply where fentanyl is everywhere, but the only thing our government knows how to do is arrest people and put them in prison. I mean, I think our opportunity to platform harm reduction in this film and Laura's willingness to really work with us on that and to become a harm reduction advocate herself in making this film is so important because holding the Sacklers accountable and showing people what they did will hopefully win uh, the people they've harmed sympathy, but the thing that will save people and save lives is harm reduction and is decriminalizing and is stopping to incarcerate people because that only leads to more overdose. I mean, we couldn't get them arrested, although I'm still hoping <laughs> that they'll be charged criminally at some point by someone. Their lawyers make a phenomenal amount of money. Mike? Yeah, so I think to date, and it, it, not to get off track, but they did push the civil liability into a bankruptcy court uh, so that they could sort of self-direct their settlement. And the lawyers that participated in that bankruptcy court, the bills have been you know, north of $700 million so far. And when you look at what they are attempting to settle with individual victims, uh, a fraction of the actual people that they hurt, 
Um, I think it's close to $750 million. So the, so the lawyers involved that represent the Sacklers and represent Purdue made just as much as the, you know, the parents of whose children were killed, uh, the children whose parents have disappeared and were, are, are incarcerated now. You know, it's a, uh, it, it took a village to defend the Sacklers. It was not just the Sacklers. It was, it was the professionals like McKinsey. It was the law firms, which I probably can't name or I'll lose, you know, get in trouble. But, um, you know, it, it took a lot of these professionals with, with no moral compass to support them. You know, this whole process has been nothing more than the defense of eight, uh, basically eight people from the same family. And in the process, these lawyers and professionals have collected a lot of money. And those lawyers and professionals go on to represent, uh, you know, uh, different posts within the government. So it, it's a very complex problem. And it, it's one that we don't see easily resolved, but it's one that we think that people like Nan Golden and Laura Poitras can certainly tackle and raise a spotlight on. So we're very, very grateful. And um, we're also grateful of the results that we've seen with uh, that's happened at our cultural institutions. Because while we can't convince the federal government to do what's right, uh, we have been able to convince some really important institutions to take down the Sackler name. And it's just an incredible, incredible uh, result. So. I just realized it's kind of eight of us against eight of them. <laughs> and uh, I just want to call out Mike Quinn that he was our lawyer through the whole thing pro bono. And they made uh, millions, the other lawyers. So that's why I think they won't be held criminally accountable. No one can afford to go up against their lawyers. Yeah. And I do hope, I mean, one of the hopes I have as a filmmaker is that the, that the film serves a, a, a bit of a blueprint of, for activists. And then also, you know, how, how you know, can, you know, you, you go after people and the fact that, that after they went into bankruptcy, that this group chased them into bankruptcy court is like one of my favorite pieces of, you know, direct action that, that I know of. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Right there in the middle. Thanks very, very much for this film. I think it is important and I think it will reach a lot of people. And also I'd like to thank you for overcoming the sadness and the anger that you must feel in order to take action. It's difficult to sustain that kind of, that kind of faith and determination and I congratulate all of you on that. Um, my question has to do with, I mean, it's, it's quite ironic that this film presents a situation in which art as protest goes against art as philanthropy. And it's such a, a strange, odd way of holding these bastards accountable. Um, I wonder whether that kind of situation um, extends to what's going on in documentary filmmaking right now, where there's a lot of, a lot of purchase of quote unquote content uh, by basically commercial interests that have nothing whatsoever to do with the intent to reveal uh, the systematic, the systemic um, problems that we're facing in this country right now. So I would um, agree for the need to be, um, that we need to be careful in the field, but I know many documentary filmmakers that are close friends, and these are independent thinkers and they make great work perhaps not in systems that are ideal, right? The structures, the structures of, of the system of how this, this country in general fails to support the arts is, you know, it's, a, it's 
it's it's outrageous if you compare it to other um, wealthy countries where arts are supported. So I, I'm not an advocate for the system that we have, but either be it philanthropy or um, you know m money coming in to to or 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 maybe like you could say like a you know, um, a, a, a lack of willingness to take risks in terms of artistic risks, right? Like that, I'm not happy about that. I am happy that that documentary filmmakers are be able to support themselves more th today than they could maybe a decade ago. And that's not a bad thing. I think the thing is, is how do we make sure that independent voices are protected and that people don't have to compromise? And we you know one of the, um, I think most concerning issues is that this kind of global platforms um, you know, creates a sort of, um, uh, yes, potential censoring because certain countries you can't show certain things. And so what does it mean if you make a film that is critical of a certain regime and then you can't distribute that film in, in that country? So, I, yeah, I, you know, I'm worried too, but I also, I really think um, we have to give a lot more credit to independent filmmakers as journalists too, you know? Um, there are journalists who do adversarial work within complicated organizations. And, um, and I don't think we, I think we need to support that, those visions. In terms of pain, you know, the interesting thing about our group is that, uh, we answer to no one except for what our group, uh, is deciding on a weekly basis. You know, we don't have outside funding. I think our biggest donation was $10,000 early on, but, um, we, you know, through Nan's leadership, really confront systems that do scare us and and do scare other people from confronting them. But I think with Nan walking through her fear, as as what was said before, we have the freedom to take on Purdue and then take on, you know, address McKinsey and take on other systems of oppression that we feel fit and and we don't feel limited because we we are grassroots truly. We have time for one more question. Yeah, right there. First of all, congratulations on the film. This is mostly for Laura and Ann, but I'd love to hear others chime in. Um, you've spent a lot of your life documenting and being witness to the evolution of direct action and political political action and community community organizing shift and enter into the digital realm. I was wondering what your ex and given that the film. Um, creates this dialogue between the work that ACT UP did and the work that Payne is doing. I was wondering what your experience has been documenting that shift in evolution, both as artists and participants. Uh, so, so the question is about sort of d d activism and sort of the digital age versus like other generations. Um, I mean, I can say, I will say that in organizing our actions. I mean, Nan said herself that she was trying to learn how to Google a couple of years ago, but it's always been important to us to have a physical presence. I, I, I respect the, the what you're asking, but I do think that first and foremost, having a physical presence and connecting with the people in the space that we were at was the starting point for a lot of our actions. And I would certainly going from that and plugging into our media um, contacts and helping to speak through the media rather than to them was always a huge thing that we took from ACT UP and developing a visual language that could be striking even in a visual. I mean, for me, th that New York Times image of the Guggenheim action went all around and people still remember it because it was a striking image. And I think finding ways to break down a complicated uh, stump speech into a simple um, distributable kind of image or piece like that became something that we figured out along the way. But 
like Megan said, picking a free night in a museum because we knew that it would be packed and at some point people would lose track of who was us and who wasn't um, was a really big part of it. And getting on the nightly news that evening, hours after we were there, yeah, and then it, and then it flies around um, and gets into the press. But I think social media for us has never been one of our biggest strengths, but I think the ways that we can coalesce with other groups through that, especially grassroots groups in New York. Um, like Megan said, we're pretty tight. Uh, we run a shoestring budget and we don't have that many people in pain itself. But groups in New York, like Vocal New York, like Truth Farm, like Housing Works, like Act Up New York, are groups that we looked to to lead us through the harm reduction part and the grassroots part. And we would take those messages, amplify them, learn from them, and use Nan's stature and the attention that Payne had garnered to try to spread that as much as we could. Um, actually, I do want to add one thing also. We, about a month ago, did an action outside of Governor Hochul's office um, to advocate for the authorization of overdose prevention centers across New York State. There are currently two that opened last year in New York City, up, uptown run by uh, Washington Heights Corner Project. And they've reversed over 500 overdoses in the year that they've been open. They also reduce hospitalizations and save an immense over five over 500 now. But they also reduce an uh, immense amount of hospital and emergency room costs and give people resources whether or not they're ready to stop using drugs. Um, Governor Hochul could tomorrow, if she wanted to, authorize those across the state. And it's clear to us that they're needed even more sorely upstate, where there's less of a network of resources than they are down here. And two overdose prevention centers in Washington Heights and Harlem can't save all of the people in New York. So Governor Hochul has a responsibility to do that now. I just want to add one thing. Um, I'm glad that Harry said all that. I'm going to divert to say that early on, I refused to do any actions where it was just the media. It had to be a day when people were there. But if ACT UP had had the media that we had and you know, digital news getting out, I think things would have worked quicker than they did for ACT UP. So that is beneficial in that way. Okay, I think we're out of time. I'm gonna ask you all to please stay in your seats while our guests um, exit the theater. I wanna thank all of you for the film and for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you.